Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about why our institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at Clemson University. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And since we're doing lecture now, I'm a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. Well, you know, it's really good to be back, guys. It's good to be here with you all talking about politics, questioning our politics, and trying to figure out what we get right and what we get wrong and how we need to adjust our thinking to really address the political dysfunction that I think everybody, regardless of their politics, sees all around them. And so in today's episode, this week's episode, we're going to try to understand better how the rules of the game, how we conduct our elections, fuels that political dysfunction in Washington, D.C., And to help us do that, we have a very special guest joining us, uh, Catherine Gale. Catherine is one of the most interesting people I know. She is the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation, a nonprofit, cross-partisan public policy organization that aims to reform American politics by using and applying private sector insights to improve our elections and to fix Congress. She is the author of The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy, and she's the leading proponent of something called politics industry theory that we're going to talk about today. Catherine has extensive experience in both the private and the public sectors. She's deeply committed to the cause of political reform, and I think most importantly, she likes to think, and she makes me think. And we've had lots of conversations where I've thought deeply, both during and afterwards, about the things that she was saying, and she's really caused me to go back and question my priors. And so, Catherine, you're exactly the kind of person that we need to have on and want to have and thrilled to have on this podcast. So welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself, your work. Tell us who you are and what you're thinking. Well, James, first of all, thanks to you and Julia and Lee for having me on. Usually... I get to listen to you guys on this podcast and the others where you are experts. And so uh, it's really quite a privilege to join you today. Let's see, what can I tell you about myself? So yes, I spent my career mostly in business with a few stints in the public sector, both at the city of Chicago and then in a federal organization on the board. And so I've seen both sides and here's where I come from. At a certain point as a business leader, I was deeply concerned as a citizen about where our politics was going. And I went through what I now call my five stages of political grief, which I'll take you through very quickly. So first I said, I better get involved in, you know, the traditional way. I will work to elect a great candidate. And so I did that. And then after that worked, I looked at Washington, D.C. and didn't see the kind of results I was getting. So I said, huh, I guess it's not it's not a great candidate that can change things. And I went from there to I know I'll work on policy. And I joined the CEO Fiscal Leadership Council for Fix the Debt and then discovered, wow, behind closed doors, the broad outlines of the solution have been known for a few decades, but there's no political will. So I guess policy doesn't really work. Okay, I know I'll deal, I'll work on culture. And I got involved with uh, the wonderful organization, No Labels, uh, very early and saw that a lot of people wanted bipartisanship and would go on record saying they wanted it. But the fact is that they basically voted the same way when push came to shove, which meant that gridlock and dysfunction continued. So I said, all right, 
not culture. I know I'll work on candidates again, but this time I'll do independent candidates, not beholden to the duopoly. And then discovered, and I did that with the centrist project and then discovered that they couldn't get elected. So finally, Mickey Edwards, whom you all know, really turned the light bulb on for me when he said, Washington isn't broken. It's doing exactly what it's designed to do. And meaning it's a systems problem. I was horrified that I had never seen that myself because once he you know, pointed that out to me, it was so obvious. And I've been a systems thinker my whole life in the private sector. And now I've never looked back on politics. So I'm all about the system and changing the system so that it so that it incents the kind of behavior and results that we need. And that's what politics industry theory is about. You know, I, I find that really interesting because oftentimes the, at least the first challenge, the first hurdle that we have to overcome in understanding politics is actually to recognize it for what it is. And it's something as simple as what Mickey Edwards uh, told you, this kind of insight that Washington's actually working exactly how it's designed to work or how the system leads it to work. It's one of those major moments that we often will just skip right over. We don't slow down our thinking enough. We don't go back to these kind of basics to say, what does the system look like? What do the institutions and the incentives look like? And so let's go there. Let's, you know, let's start with your indictment of the rules of the game. And you say that the system is working or the DC is working just like it's supposed to. How do these rules of the game, how do the way we conduct our elections, how do they fuel this political dysfunction in Washington, DC? And then based on your work in this area, and your application of kind of the real world or, you know, kind of private sector insights, how does that go over with, with scholars, with, with the media, with journalists, with people who just are obsessed with Congress, obsessed with our politics and how it operates? You know, I find often in my own work, in my own experience, that there's this gap, there's a disconnect between how we think about the place and how it exists in reality. And so I'm very curious to hear, you, you know, your take on that reality and, and how other people are relating to it and how it's been received. Okay, uh, quite a few things in there and all interesting. Let me say something to begin with, which is let's talk about this epiphany that I had once I understood it was a system, how it led me to what a, you know is now called politics industry theory. I was running a $250 million food manufacturing company in Wisconsin, and we made, among other things, cheese, which always makes people happy that I ran a food company in Wisconsin and my product was cheese. But um, as I was doing a classic strategy project, I realized essentially how odd it was that the way things work in my industry and in other most other industries was so different than how politics works, which is this. Basically, if I want to do well in my business, I have to make my customers happy. So my cheese sauce has to taste good and be the right price, et cetera. And if it isn't and my customers aren't happy, someone will see that as a business opportunity and they will come in and offer my customers a better product at a better price, for example, and then I'll lose my business. There's accountability in the system if I don't deliver results for my customers. So as I was doing that strategy project and I was already deeply you know, in these five stages of grief here, I realized how odd it is that in our industry of politics, those in the business of politics are doing incredibly well, more power, 
more money, longer campaigns. It's just, we all know that politics is bigger and wealthier than ever. And yet their customers, that is to say the citizens, are actually not happy at all. So Congress, as you guys all know, you know, has usually around a 20% approval rate, meaning 80% of those customers want something else. So in any other industry that's as large and as thriving as politics with this much customer satisfaction and only two players, some entrepreneur would see it as a phenomenal business opportunity and come in to provide what those customers want, which is to say like new candidates, new parties, for example, would come in, but that doesn't happen in politics. And that is essentially a problem of the rules of the game. So as soon as I saw that disconnect, you know, why doesn't that happen in politics? Then I looked into what's going on that politics is so non-responsive to their customers and they get to keep doing well when the customers aren't happy. So that's where we came from. And then the rules of the game that I looked at were really, I can't say I looked at all of them, but certainly most of the major structures in the industry and eventually focused in on the core structure of how our elected officials, let's just think of Congress for right now, how our senators and representatives get and keep their jobs, which is to say they get elected and they get elected through this pretty standard system of a party primary and then a general election in their state or district. And what became very evident immediately is that there is right now no connection between our senators and representatives delivering results in the broad public interest of their entire district and state and the likelihood that they are going to get reelected, which is to say that those things aren't connected. It's, it's crazy. It's almost like if you had a business, you would say to people, you know, please, I'm going to hire you. And then I want you to do all of these things. That's what we need. And when you do those things and deliver these great results, you're going to lose your job. And that's really what we've told our politicians in, in Congress. So that's the broad rules of the game. The way we run our elections are the biggest problem. Now you asked me another question. I don't know if you want me to keep going on and on about what the, how the scholars and the media have responded or have no, I no, said absolutely. enough? Keep, keep okay. going. That's, okay, great. We're here to listen to you. <laughs> you know, I've been taught forever, right? Not to talk too long. Okay. Uh, scholars, media. Um, well, I would say, how are you guys responding to it? Because you are those scholars, uh, these experts in the system. So I'll be interested to hear what you say. Well and the, played. Very well played. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. I made a decision early on to go first with this theory, but most importantly, with the solution, because I didn't want to just have a theory and say, isn't it interesting to look at the dysfunction this new way? I mean, we don't need more interpretations of the dysfunction, really, because we have a lot of great work on why it's dysfunctional uh, with politics industry theory just being a new take. But I wanted to take the solution, which is final five voting, which we'll talk about um, soon. And I only went to business people at first. And there, the reception was really outstanding as in, wow, that is the most logical 
way of looking at it that they had ever thought of, which is how it occurred for me as a business person. Not that it's the only way to look at it, certainly not. It just made really a great deal of sense to business people. So I wanted to go first to people who would uh, be likely to resonate with it. And I found that if I went to political people, it was just too far afield and they couldn't get their minds around it. So I would I did eventually have meetings with, you know, very high up officials. And a lot of it was like, oh, but you'll never change it, but it doesn't work that way, but it's more complicated than that. You know, they just, it just totally wasn't obvious to them the way it was obvious to business people. So we grew our support where there was resonance. And as it got more and more support, then it caused other people who didn't initially see the attraction to begin to pay attention. And particularly, once we had a win. So it's one thing to be talking theoretical, and it's another thing to be talking about something which is being practiced. And that is, as you know, James, that Alaska, the state of Alaska, passed by ballot initiative, the solution that I propose, and it's called, my solution is called final five voting, but what Alaska passed is essentially final four voting because my 2017 work on which their ballot initiative was based was calling for top four primaries. Again, we'll get into that in a moment. And so they passed that in November of 2020 and their elections and their incentives are now altered in Alaska. And once that became a real thing, the interest on the part of people in the system to take a serious look at it really, really increased. Nonetheless, the real enthusiastic support continues to be from business leaders who really love and exist in this world of competition. So Lee, you, you ask, I mean, you're the one here who knows all a lot about elections and has thought deeply about them. I mean, why don't, I mean, how does, yeah, what do you uh, think? And how does this all, what's, tell us, what do you think? I'll dig in, um, but on the, the, the final five voting system. But first, I want to hang on the politics industry theory for a second, because I, I mean, to me, coming at this as a political scientist, I think it's really fascinating how people, uh, you know, in business, uh, you know, somebody like you, Catherine, who comes from a business background, sees politics differently than somebody who comes at it from political science. And, you know, I, I guess when I hear you talking about results and acting in the public interest, one of the things that, that strikes me is, the, is that it's really hard for individual members of Congress to uh, generate results because, you know, governing is really a, a team sport. So when I think about representation, uh, you know, I really think about it in terms of is the representative, the senator, representing a uh, what is the perspective that the the senator and what are the values that the senator is representing, and then the results are sort of collective results, which makes it really hard for accountability uh, because how how do you know what role that somebody played in a in a bill that was a broad compromise bill and you can look at votes you can look at their public statement but you know in some sense it's hard and you know there's a lot of compromise that's involved in the process and you know I think it's one of the challenges that the you know the public interest well I don't know what the public interest is and you know I don't know if anybody knows what the public interest is but it kind of emerges from a process where members of Congress 
go to Washington and they debate and they deliberate and they change their mind and they have new information and they make compromises. And so, you know, there's a question of what what is the theory of representation here? I mean, results for the state that suggests a, a, you know, a sort of very classic parochial log roll politics. And maybe if politics is about distributive politics, then that makes sense. But in, in an era of nationalized politics and strong parties, I'm not sure how to think about results in acting in the public interest at, at kind of an individual dyadic representation level. So uh, uh, welcome for you to respond to that, or we can talk more about uh, just kind of for you to, to walk us through a little bit about Final Five voting. And so I'll, I'll put my, my question out there, which is basically, I think, you know, for, first, I, I think may, many of our listeners may not be aware of this innovation that you've come up with. So um, I'd love for you to kind of just spell it out, how it works and why why you see it as an improvement. And, you know, talk about particularly, you know, what effect you think it would have on candidates' parties? You, you know, Would it make parties stronger, weaker? And also what we're seeing with how it's affected Lisa Burkowski. Uh, she eyes a, a re-election in 2022 in Alaska. So I know I've put a lot out there. That's what we do on this podcast. So you can choose what you want to respond to. Okay, that feels like a test of my memory, if I can remember all these questions, but they're all good ones, of course. So yes, let me talk about the first set. So I agree with you that what I've what I've talked about doesn't apply exactly to individual politicians and it isn't meant to. So when I talk about results, what I'm looking at is does the way we elect the individuals send them to Congress in a way that the body itself, the group, is in a good position to deal powerfully with the complex trade-offs of the complex issues that we have to solve. Because look, if we had easy issues with no hard trade-offs, then even this existing crummy system would be able to solve them. We have complex issues and they require those trade-offs. They require deal-making and negotiation. So what I'm looking at is do the members, the players of that game in Congress have the freedom and the incentive to do that work? And if they do that tough work and they deal with these complex trade-offs resulting in legislation that begins to move us forward on some of the most sort of divisive and challenging issues that we have right now, then then can they get reelected, you know, by doing that. So I don't expect that the system is going to hold an individual accountable as in did that individual contribute to how much to X or Y deal. It is that the overall system is held accountable because you will see new competitors able to come into the system if the public satisfaction rate with Congress continues to be only 20%. So it's the competition overall that holds them accountable. As to what is the public interest, we should have a totally different discussion on that. I do actually present in my first work in 2017 a set of uh, criteria that describe what it means, uh, the public interest, but let's not get off on that right now. So moving forward, 
I will go ahead and answer your next question, which was about final five voting. And first, yes, I sh we should uh, tell the listeners what that is. So final five voting is the umbrella name for a new system of elections to Congress, which makes two changes in comparison to our existing elections. First, we get rid of party primaries, no Democrat primary, Republican primary advancing, you know, just one D and one R to the general election. We get rid of that. And instead, we have one primary, essentially a first round election on the same day as the primaries, you know, take place now. And it's a single ballot primary. Everybody running is on the same ballot. And when the voters come in, they don't have to be registered with the party. Everybody gets to vote. And everybody sees all the candidates, regardless of how they identify Democrat, Republican, Green, Independent, Libertarian. The voters each pick their favorite, and then the polls close. Now, the votes are counted, and the top five finishers will automatically advance to the general election. So that's called a top five primary. Now we'll get this benefit of healthy competition between the primary and the general, where we have you know, five different visions and candidacies and, and ideally innovative ideas. And you could easily have in a red district, you know, three Republicans and one Democrat, one independent, and you'll have therefore intra-party competition going into the general election, which has accountability mechanisms as well, because well, we can talk about some of that later. So, so now the second change is in the general election, we need to figure out who wins. Now, this would seem easy, but it's not quite as simple as we might have thought, because now that we have five, what we wouldn't want to do, what would be ill-advised is if one of these five were able to win with, let's say, just 21% of the vote which could happen if the votes split approximately equally five ways. Because if you know they won with 21%, that would mean more people in the district wanted someone else than wanted them. What we need is to figure out who has the broadest support uh, from the most number of voters. And for that, we use instant runoff voting, which many people listening to this may know of as uh, ranked choice voting. And that's a system where you get to rank your preferences, you know, all the way from your top choice to your fifth choice, someone like over my dead body, do I want this candidate to win? And you put them last. And, and then when the polls close, you count up all those votes and use a series of runoffs to determine which of the five has majority support over 50%. The combination of top five primaries and instant runoff general elections is called final five voting. And that's that's what I propose. Now, are you sure I'm not going on too long? Because you asked me then, what do I think the effects are? Yeah, keep on going. We're, we're, here, to, we're here to hear from you. So yeah. So here's the, here's the broad effects. Final five voting is not designed to necessarily change who wins. It's designed to change what the winners have the freedom to do and are incented to do and on whose behalf they're doing it. So this is what is different in Congress for someone elected through final five voting. Right now, let's say you're 
you know, representative in Congress and you are considering a vote on a bipartisan infrastructure bill, perhaps, and you say, hmm, you, you, you should really ask yourself, you know, is this a good idea? Is this what the majority of my constituents want? Is this the best deal we can get, et cetera? But you really can't afford to ask yourself those questions in the existing system. You really have to ask, will I make it back through my next party primary if I vote yes on this bill? And unfortunately, the answer to that question is on both sides, almost always no, you won't win your party primary, which is to say compromise solutions will lose jobs of both Democrats and Republicans if they vote for it, even if that's the best overall solution. And the reason for that is that party primaries, as again, uh, you guys all know, determine the winner of the election in over 80% of House districts. So the voters who vote in those primaries are the only voters whose opinions the representatives can afford to take into account. They cannot afford to focus on their general electorate because they'll never make it to the general election if they don't first please the party primary voters. So about, you know, 15 years or so ago, there was a change. Primary used to be a noun, you know, the primary. And then it it switched into a verb. And now we hear it all the time that, you know, uh, let's say right now, AOC is going to primary someone from the left. Trump is going to primary someone from the right. And that means that certain factions of each party will try to take out someone they don't agree with in the primary. So that means that, again, only certain opinions can be taken account. And here's the thing. I'm actually not denigrating the opinions of those who vote in primaries. And I, of course, vote in primaries, as do many of your listeners. Having said that, the problem is that when they're the only opinions that matter, that And there's one thing that both sides agree on, which is don't compromise and don't work with the other side that basically forbids our legislators to do what we need them to do. We need them to negotiate. We need them to cut deals. We need them to look for the solutions to these complex problems, which involve the trade-offs. And we need them to choose which trade-offs we're going to make, because right now we never make any trade-offs. For example, when we have a bipartisan deal now, if you look underneath, what you'll find is there's pretty much one, two commonalities to anything that's lauded as a bipartisan deal. One, it's a response to a, an emergency, either a political emergency, a natural emergency, or a national security emergency, a natural disaster, or a national security emergency. And the second piece you'll find is that the deal won't be paid for. And there'll be a collusion between both sides to sort of mention that it's not paid for, to not mention it. And so so we have sent our representatives to Congress with explicit instructions, incentives that they cannot do what we need them to do to govern this country. So that's, that's how it will change with final five voting, which is now let's pretend it's the exact same person who was elected under the old rules and, and they couldn't vote yes on, a, on the bipartisan solution on, on infrastructure, for example. And now 
they're in Congress under the new rules and they can look at the deal and say, hmm, I know this is the best option in this, you know, divided Congress and with a complex issue. And under the old system, I, I never would have made it through my party primary. I'd be definitely out of a job if I voted yes for this. But hmm, under the new final five voting system, you know, I know I'll be in the top five out of that primary. I, I'm the incumbent. I have huge name recognition. People like me. I'll definitely be in the top five, even if someone in my party mounts a challenge to me. And then when I get to the general election, I will be able to appeal to the broad general electorate, which, by the way, even in a gerrymandered district includes people from the other party, et cetera. And with a combination of first, second, and maybe even third choice votes, I have a chance to craft a win. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the right thing here. I'm going to vote yes on, on what is the best deal that we can make. And that is the freedom to use their talent and passion that they have for this country that led them to serve that will put our legislators in a position to actually powerfully legislate. And that, that's the difference. Now, I will say a couple other things quickly. I believe in strong parties. I'm a huge proponent of strong parties. I think our parties are too weak, and I'm happy to talk more about that and how I see Final Five voting as actually increasing the power of parties in a very beneficial way for them and for their customers. And then the last thing I'll say is about Murkowski. So Senator Murkowski is a, a senator from Alaska. She's up for re-election in 2024. And as we noted a moment ago, Alaska changed their rules to have final four voting. So it's a top four primary and instant runoff general election. And they changed those in, in 20. So Senator Murkowski has known ever since November of 20, what her incentives were. The incentives change immediately because what your incentives are is your next election, even if you were elected under the old rules. So she knew that she was going to have a chance to make her case to the general electorate right from the start. And she has taken advantage of that freedom from what I call the tyranny of the party primary to chart a more independent path. And by the way, you don't have to agree with what she's done, the choices she's made to see that she has had a freedom to make choices that she would not have if her only path to reelection were a party, a Republican primary in Alaska, where she would highly likely lose with the path that she has chosen. So she's taken advantage of it. And now what we'll see in Alaska is there will be in November, she'll make it through the top five, top four primary. There's a Trump-supported challenger to her, another Republican, who will make it through the top four. There'll be a Democrat through the top four, and then there'll be one other person. I don't have a sense of who it will be, who will make it through the top four. Then in the general election, they will have that instant runoff voting, and we'll see who wins. Now, let me say, a lot of reformers are focused on an erroneous idea. A lot of reformers believe that final four voting is successful only if Senator Murkowski wins. Let me say that's totally wrong. Final four voting creates an opportunity for moderates and moderate action, but it isn't a protect only moderates or protect Lisa Murkowski bill. It is let the general electorate decide election system. 
And so if the general electorate of Alaska wants the Trump-supported challenger, that is exactly who they should get. But what we already know is Final Four voting is a success because we know the general electorate, all the voters are going to choose and everybody's vote is going to matter, including the Democrats and the independents who are a majority of voters in Alaska, instead of just the 10% of voters who would have voted in the Republican primary. And then they, the voters get to choose and that's what a democracy is. Now, over time, Will people like Senator Bukowski have more chance of winning than they did under the old system? Absolutely. But you can't say that now this system automatically means the middle person wins because that would be a Trojan horse for some sort of policy or partisan opinion, whereas what final five voting and final four voting creates is simply a very competitive general election where you find the majority winner and you get those benefits of competition. Okay, so I'm I'm very sympathetic to a couple things that you're saying. One I, one thing I really want to point out is that your idea uh, gets at the idea that that people who are are going to represent us in Congress or wherever should have a majority support. I think that's a, an important idea that sometimes gets lost in some of these other institutional arguments. I definitely share your concern about the strength of political parties, and I want to ask more about that. And I also will will note, just for the sake of our listenership, that I I really started this podcast being very skeptical of reform proposals, and I'm starting to move into this sort of sure, why not space, um, where it's like, oh, you know, why, why not try some things? It's very hard to defend the status quo. I'm curious about, I guess, two things. And uh, so let me pose two questions and you can pick up what you what you want. One is how this system will strengthen parties and kind of what what you define party strength as and and how we should think about that. And the second one is maybe a little bit more abstract, but it really has to do with the information environment that would inform what you're talking about, where you're really talking about, your argument reminds me of this piece that came out in the journal PS in 2004. It's a political scientist and a physicist, and they write about changing the voting systems. You can vote no for a candidate. And, you know, it's this whole proposal, but the logic is very similar. They argue that this sort of market logic of if you want people to buy your peanut butter and not your competitor's peanut butter, you don't say that their peanut butter makes people go bald or whatever. You say that it, you know, your peanut butter is better. And you hear this, you hear this argument a lot coming from the private sector that there should be competition structured in politics such that you're incentivized to make your side look good and the other side, unless the other side looks bad. We're really not seeing anything in politics that works that way. What we've seen is competition makes that worse, right? Competition makes politicians really engage in that kind of negative um, thinking. And when we talk about what makes people happy in politics, that's where recent research kind of suggests that those feedback loops are broken. It suggests that even when people like the policies, it doesn't it doesn't reap rewards for politicians. And we see this like we've seen this with with the Affordable Care Act, where most people like some of the provisions, but then they they didn't like the bill because of the way it was politicized. And you also kind of saw this, I think in some ways even more puzzlingly, with the Biden administration that people overwhelmingly wanted to get out of Afghanistan, but then they weren't happy about 
that actual reality of, as you said before, there's always pain and trade-offs in these decisions. But what does seem to make people happy in the field of psychology, the field of psychology has shown us what does kind of make people happy is like feeling good about their team because their team is better than the other team. Um, that people enjoy that feeling of, of anger or of superiority. And so we're psychological creatures. And I, I worry that your really, you know, thought out theory is a world of rational creatures and we're just maybe not those creatures. And I'm going to tack on one more question. And this is the question I'm asking everyone this week. And it's not, it's a very short sentence, which is Joe Manchin, question mark, question mark, question mark. I'm thinking a lot about him, about his role in the policymaking process as we talk about legislators who are responsive to something other than a partisan primary electorate. So if you can pull out um, any sort of cohesive question from my ramblings here, um, more power to you. But those, that's sort of what I'm thinking about is, you know, how does this system strengthen parties? How does this system deal with the reality that human psychology doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to be drawn to good policy. It seems to be drawn to bad arguments um, or negative, nasty arguments. Um, and are these kinds of middle-of-the-road senators that we're thinking about, or legislators, always working, you know, consistently in the service of the greater good in the way that you've you've sort of laid out and used Murkowski as an example of? Okay. Uh, you guys all have at least three-part questions. I love it, though. Okay. <laughs> so how will this strengthen parties? Okay. First of all, I want to say, why are strong parties good? So strong parties are good when their strength is results from customers, from citizens liking what they deliver, from a majority of citizens liking what they deliver. Right now, parties are strong when they can make 10% of voters like what they deliver and make donors like what they deliver, or as sort of one of your later questions gets at, or when they can make 10% of voters and donors uh, hate the other party a lot. And that is a problem if the best way to be strong today is to make your side and only 10% of your side, you know, really hate the other side. So that's a recipe for disaster. So with final five voting, the way that parties would be strong, which is to say they would win, is by being able to run and support and elect their candidates in a general election with majority support. So that is essentially the best you can ask from a democracy. And that's why we need strong parties to do that. Here's the problem, this sort of conundrum right now, is that parties can only be so strong because they don't choose their own product. Parties' candidates are chosen for them to Congress in the party primary, and they're also they cannot choose candidates that they really want if those candidates can't win the party primary. So they have very little 
agency, the parties themselves, over what they want their product to be, because they have to have a product that can win these party primaries uh, where the out-party hatred is, is a primary condition. And then they have to run them you know, through the general election. So what happens in this case is that the parties get to choose on their own who they endorse. So if they want to have a smoke-filled room, if they want to have a smoke-free room, if they want to have a convention, if they want to use the best online analytical tools, they can do that to figure out which candidates you know, support what they believe in and have the best chance of winning. And that is the proper role of a private organization, which political parties are. Now, the reason we never wanted them to be so private before and have a smoke-filled back room is because when there's no way for other competitors to get in there, if you let them have smoke-filled back rooms, you'd essentially be saying, you know, like two people in a smoke-filled room could make the decision. But if they don't make decisions that get majority support in the general electorate, now other parties or independents have the same access to the to the, make their case to the general electorate ballot. So it's not just one Democrat and one Republican are the only people who can compete anymore. So that competition holds them, holds their power accountable. You could never allow smoke-filled back rooms when you have just a duopoly, one Democrat, one Republican. That would be totally unrepresentative and undemocratic. Okay, so that's why we need to strengthen, uh, that's why and how we'll strengthen the parties. Then your second question is, what was it, Julia? So the second question was kind of about how we think about human beings as what we clearly are kind of psychological creatures and kind of what is, what constitutes winning for, for the people or what constitutes making people happy in politics? Yes. Yes. Uh, And by the way, I agree with you, Julia, that one of our big problems right now is that people's needs are not being met. I know you've uh, talked compellingly about that. So Look, we have to let, in in my view, we let the customers, this is just a business way of putting it, decide whether they're happy or not by the actions that they take at the ballot box. And once they have, in the top five primary, they can have as many choices as people get signatures to run and they pick their favorite and that will tell us what they want there. And then their votes will matter and tell us what they want in the general. So that is the expression in a democracy of their satisfaction or not. And I would say one of the things that I think is powerful about looking at politics through a business lens is we really do in business look very much, we're able to focus very much on only the highest leverage things. We say, we always say strategies about choosing what not to do. And we also live absolutely 100% in the real world. We don't live in any theory because the real world is people buy our product or they don't buy our product. So I totally agree with you that the way humans make decisions is not as entirely rational beings um, and that we have this group affiliation and that that tribal nature of our politics is one of the most powerful forces there is. So we, none of us, you know, can change those behaviors and and tendencies that are sort of part of what it is to be human. 
what we can do is see whether our system really mitigates those or reinforces those in a negative way. And so our current system is basically the worst kind of system you could have given those human tendencies, which is that in a duopoly, having only two, the best way to win is to really lean into those tribal tendencies, lean into the power of anger and disdain as as the emotions that elicit the strongest engagement. And so that's what we're seeing here. In fact, what we've seen, which always happens in business, is that over time, companies in an industry, you know, figure out better and better ways to compete. They optimize how they compete. So parties used to actually think that they needed to care about the middle and they needed to tack to the middle. And the fact is in a duopoly that's protected, which is to say where no one else can enter, you can't have any competition outside the two. That's not the best way to compete is to care about the middle. The best way to compete is to be as far apart from each other as possible to get the middle to stay home and to uh, get your partisans to you know, dislike the other side because that's the strongest emotion. So as the parties realized that there was no benefit in the way they used to compete more regularly, then we see, you know, the system we have today that really leans into, as I say, these aspects of being human. Our charge as humans over, you know, I mean, ever since we've been trying to live collectively is to figure out how we want to run our economic system and how we want to govern ourselves. And we've chosen here in America, this, you know, system of democracy, which is the one that still brings me to tears and that I work for. And we need to have the rules that recognize those tendencies, but put them to work in the best way. And so once you have five competitors in the general election, the strategy of making your voters hate the other side is a lot less uh, compelling. You can't necessarily do that in as efficient and effective a way because you may, in most cases, be unlikely to win the election on the first choice ballots and you have to get second choice support. So you're going to need other candidates, voters to choose you as the next choice. And that means that, that again, you're not incented in many cases to, to create this amount of hate, to lean into that. And also, once you have five, people are choosing different ways of competing. So you will have people competing who may not even have a chance to win, but they're competing to bring ideas forth or to say what's true. Whereas in our existing system, the Democrats just say everything the Republicans say is wrong, and the Republicans say everything the Democrats say is wrong, and there's no truth tellers in the system because there's no space for them. It's not an advantage. And if if one side does tell the truth, I'm not saying they always lie, I'm saying, but if one side tells the truth, it's not compelling to anyone because the other side just thinks they're lying and, and vice versa. So now you'll have um, some independent voices who can 
tell the truth about that. And that means that competition incents the winners to do different things, even when the winners are the same. Let me give you an example that will make it more clear. So competition in the private sector may not change which companies are winners in the marketplace, but it always changes how satisfied customers are and what they have available to them. So like in technology, you could have some startup come up with a new technology that is really amazing. And maybe they just get bought or maybe one of the big guys copies them, or maybe they take it all the way to the top and they become one of the new behemoths. But either any of those outcomes are neutral for the customer who gets the benefit of that innovation. So competition among five in in an election will present those kinds of innovations, which if they resonate with the voters, the winners will need to take account of. Let's go back to 1992 when Ross Perot ran as an independent candidate in the presidential election. So he only got 19% of the vote and not a single electoral vote. But the customers, the citizens of the country benefited because we got balanced budgets in the Clinton administration because Perot ran in large part on debt and deficit reduction. And that 19% of the electorate put pressure on both sides to make that issue something that they were going to solve because they didn't want to cede the resonance of that issue to a new third party. They wanted to take those voters back for themselves. Uh, and this, I will, I will note, it's not just me saying this, although that's exactly how the theory works. It is uh, Paul Begala, for example. So Perot passed away about two years ago, and Paul Begala, who was one of Clinton's top advisors, wrote an op-ed when, when Perot died, and he said, it is doubtful that we would have solved that issue without the pressure that Perot's voters brought to it. That's what competition does. It doesn't necessarily change who wins. It changes the benefits for the customers if what that new competition is proposing resonates with them. So that's what we'll begin to see that works with the realities of being human. And then your final question was about Joe Manchin. And we see that he has huge power, of course, because he has a certain he has certain electoral dynamics where he has to care about his general election um, every bit as much as he has to care about his primary and in fact more it's very competitive and he's a Democrat elected in a red state now those dynamics I like when when he has a power to make deals it is not good for our system when one person holds that power so. What we need are a whole group of people who could form and unform coalitions around certain issues to get them solved. So I think about the gang of four, the gang of six, the gang of eight. We can't have a gang of one. That's really not sustainable or helpful over time. But with final five voting, if you had, let's say, 10 states, with those incentives, you'd have 20 senators who would still, in most cases, be Democrats and Republicans and believe, you know, wholeheartedly as they should in their ideology and policy preferences. But they would have the electoral freedom 
to form those gangs of six, gangs of eight, gangs of four to negotiate and make the deals for the bipartisan solution that then could get ideally more than, you know, 50 plus one uh, vote support. So we need multiple people in this fulcrum of deal makers. It's not a fulcrum of moderates. It's a fulcrum of deal makers. And sometimes people may be quite passionately, you know, far right conservative or passionately far, far left, if that's what the voters in their state or district wanted. And again, they should be, but they will come into this deal making with the ability to figure out how to have their issues be counted and yet not have them be just veto power issues. So this is really fascinating. And I mean, I don't know, just as an aside, as I was taught in school growing up, I went to public school in Georgia and I was always taught that gangs were bad. Gangs are not a good thing and you shouldn't join a gang. And now all of a sudden, there's this, you know, kind of tongue in cheek here. You know, we have a lot of people that say, well, we need this gang or this gang. And it seems like gangs are, and I'm not suggesting that you're necessarily saying that, but I do want to kind of draw this issue out. Gangs are an alternative like a place to make decisions. They're an alternative uh, group of people to make decisions when the normal groups aren't making those decisions, when they're not working, when committees aren't working and their committee members aren't doing this and the full chamber floors aren't doing this. And I think that really draws, you know, I think draws me to, I'm going to push you just a little bit. I applaud, I applaud your focus on competition or what I, you know, call conflict or political conflict. I, you know, I want to applaud the focus on this partisan duopoly and the ways in which it seeks to um, reduce conflict, because I think in many respects that is at the core of our current political dysfunction, but maybe not necessarily in the way that most people think. And one of the things, and I also want to applaud your focus on actually like what happens in reality. And that that's, brings up my question here is the observed behavior of lawmakers. Are we, are they behaving the way we actually think that they are behaving according to this kind of view, number one? And if they are, is it all the time? I mean, think about you know, I think about, say, Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell has negotiated lots of deals. He has negotiated lots of compromises, some of which conservatives really don't like. In fact, most of which conservatives really don't like. There was a period in time where Rand Paul, the junior senator from Kentucky, defeated his handpicked uh, successor to Jim Bunning, uh, the senator from Kentucky who retired, Trey Grayson, the secretary of state. Rand Paul defeated him. He was backed by McConnell. He surprised McConnell. That sent a message to McConnell that maybe he was a little bit out of step with his primary constituency. So he then spent the next, what, two years? He basically gave his voting card to Rand Paul. You can go back and look at the voting records and it'll be like 98 to 2 on some votes and it'll be like Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell. And it's very obvious and transparent what's happening. Orrin Hatch did the same thing with Bob Bennett after Bob Bennett was defeated by Mike Lee. He basically gave his voting card to Mike Lee. But then after these two senators, these senior senators, won their primaries, they pivoted back quickly in the general, and then they went back to just what they usually do in the Senate. They weren't, they weren't bomb throwers. They weren't trying to burn down the House. In fact, Mitch McConnell is negotiating you know, infrastructure bills in 2015. He is actively working to try to raise the debt ceiling when conservatives say don't do that in his primary constituency. He's He's publicly saying we have to repeal Obamacare root and branch privately. He's saying there's no way we're going to do that. And so I guess my question is, are is this dynamic happening all the time or is it only in certain instances? 
And and I guess, and then lastly, because everybody's asking lots of questions, I don't want to be left out here. Do the rules of the game always have this effect? Because it seems to me that while our electoral system is a little bit different today than it was, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, if you really want change, if you want impetus for big ideas to happen, you need pressure from the from the outliers, pressure from the progressives, the liberals, and the conservatives. This is what leads to a lot of the lawmaking of the of the 60s and 70s. And and it seems to me that the and I know you're not advocating for kind of government by moderates, um, but when you have a primary type system where these um, groups can really compete with one another. And they can try to take over and present like a kind of clear voice, you know, a principled stand against something and really start to shift the agenda. Isn't, is that, isn't that what we actually need in our politics today? More action? And, and is it, you know, that we just don't have that? I mean, is the problem that we're talking about doing things, but we don't actually do them? And, and if that's the case, you know, why, how does this, you know, final five voting solve that problem? I'm just going to throw it all out there. That's all I got. Seriously, the the sum of these questions is so extraordinary today. Okay, James. So I'm going to take your second question first because this is really a often a misunderstanding that people have about final five voting, which I I talked about a little bit before, but I'll reinforce now. Final five voting allows the expression, not just allows, creates a platform of expression of views across many different dimensions. So not just the sort of right left that we have now, when we talk about the far right or the far left, and then the middle on one dimension of competition, but lots of different dimensions of competition, maybe perhaps going to the kinds of multi-dimensions that Lee had presented in his, you know, are there six parties? If there were six parties, you could be you know, in a different kind of uh, party than we have right now. So we need in, a, in this diverse country with complex issues with where there's no one right answer, we need a, an opportunity for those ideas to have expression in the system, which means the extremes are super valuable. Now, as you just said, James, you know, back in the 60s, Things were changing in part because of pressure that comes from the extremes. Absolutely. And again, we in business very much recognize this. Innovation does not arise in general from the squishy middle or the conventional wisdom or what we've been doing in the past 10 years. Innovation arises from people thinking outside the box, working on different dimensions. And so you have to have that possibility. But what we have right now in our system is we can have outside the box or sort of uh, minority extreme thinking, but they have the potential to take over entirely one of two parties if those are views that become dominant in the 10% of people that vote in the party primaries determining the winners. So we have to have a system where you allow the opportunity for all kinds of different views, but not where any particular type has an advantage where their views essentially have outsized importance, which is to say party primary votes are much, much, much more valuable than general election votes, which is a currency that is essentially worthless. So 
Final five voting gives us the best of both worlds, which is you get this competition of ideas and visions and innovation, and you elect someone who has majority support. So it's not minority representation, it's majority representation. And then they take into account those ideas that actually, you know, are that they judge to be good and that their colleagues, you know, judge to be good. So they come together, which brings me to the second question. Is this the way real people behave? Like, is this what's really happening that the party primaries are so dominant? Yes, it is what's really happening in large part. Now, let me say here, Final five voting is not a silver bullet. It isn't the only thing we should do. And even in my book, I talk about, you know, right away, what are the next things we need to do? Final five voting is the change that is powerful, as in it's likely to change the results that Congress can deliver. And it's also achievable, which means that we can we don't have to get a constitutional amendment to do it. We can see success in years, not decades. So it's the highest leverage change that we have available to us right now, where we could see a change in the shortest, that's worth changing, you know, uh, in the shortest amount of time. And in order for that to be the case, what we have to see is that this changes behavior, not all of the time necessarily, but enough of the time, some of the time in order to move the needle. So one of the things we know, for example, again, in business is if you can you know, raise your uh, price just a small amount, all of that goes to the bottom line. Sometimes we only need to move a small number of people in Congress to make a difference in what we can accomplish. So I'll share with you uh, a story that I will... Uh, make anonymous. So I was talking to, well, I've been in an ongoing dialogue with a very high level White House strategist. And one of the things that this person said to me when he first read my work was, oh, I know what I'm saying. When I sent the book to this person, I said, you know, the only thing I want you to do when you're reading this book is ask yourself on every page, what could have been what could have been accomplished in the administration you were a part of if Congress had been elected under these rules of the game? And in our subsequent conversations, he then told me multiple stories of meeting with people from the other party who said, I'm totally with you on this, but I can't afford to do it. And you don't need my vote anyway. You have enough people, you know, and I can't win my party primary or my party will be mad at me, et cetera. And so that meant that we have more divisiveness than is needed on, on any particular issue. And, and it caused all kinds of uh, situations where you couldn't make things happen. And then I, and then he said to me recently that whenever someone asks him what we can do to change you know, the trajectory we're on, which is depressing everybody, he said, the only thing I talk about is your work, which I certainly take that as a great compliment, but I bring it up here only to say that is the observed lived world of you know, one particular high level individual about the dynamics that are at play. And when I, I want people who 
really are deeply Democrat and deeply Republican right now to ask themselves this. If they think about really wanting everything that they believe in to occur, and they think that in 2004, we're going to elect a Democrat or a Republican as president, do they want their president to have some people from the other party who are under these incentives who could participate with them in actually governing? Or do they want to be president in a system where they can only rely on one side and fight completely with the other side? And I've actually had a conversation recently with a likely Republican presidential candidate, and his answer is he absolutely wants this Congress a Congress with a number of people elected under final five voting because he wants to actually deliver results when he gets there. And this would give a lot more negotiation you know, opportunity in Congress. And so I'll leave you with one last thing. Final five voting, even though I talk about it as a super powerful solution, I obviously believe in it a great deal. It, it doesn't create some democratic utopia. You know, we have super complex issues um, and problems and challenges, and and the pace of them is only increasing. So I often think of what uh, Churchill said, and I agree with him, that democracy is the worst form of government out there, except when compared with all the others. Democracy is messy, it is hard, and it will continue to be that way. But what we have right now is messy, hard, and really bad results to show for all of that. With final five voting, we will have messy, hard, and some good results to show for that. Well, that's cheerful, but it's true. It's true. It's the best, you know, it's the best we can do. And and sometimes, and I tell my students this a lot, I tell people, sometimes the secret to happiness is learning how to be happy with suboptimal outcomes. There's a lot of really brilliant, sounds depressing there, but James, let me push back on you. I don't see that as suboptimal outcomes. No, I don't is, either. That's in, the in point. A democ- yeah, in a democracy, it's it's sort of natural that things would be messy, hard, and then we figure out right. a collective way forward. I, I, it makes me super optimistic, actually. I love it. If somebody's getting everything they want, we're not doing it right, because we usually call that person a ruler in, in, in political theory. But I'm going to turn to Lee and Julia here for some kind of lightning round. I know we've been, we've been uh, taking up a lot of your time, and then I'm going to let you have the last word here, uh, Catherine. We're running a little long, so I'll ask a quick question and let Julia ask a quick question and let you uh, jump in. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I'm hearing throughout this conversation um, that I, I, you know, I, I think confuses me a little bit is the way in which you're equating citizens as uh Customers and consumers, and uh, you know, I, I understand that there's you know certain ways in which you know that politics is like a market, but you know, I, I, it seems to me a rather thin and limiting definition of citizenship. And you know, I, I think of democracy not as something where we just vote in elections, although elections are essential, but something much more e- expansive, and that citizenship, uh, you know, and democracy itself is an ethic. Uh, and a way of thinking about things that that requires a, a level of engagement, participation, and identity that that is far more broader than you know just mere consumership. Uh, I'll turn it over to 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 Julia, um, and maybe I'm misunderstanding. I mean, maybe that's just kind of a shorthand thing, but it does kind of strike me that we that it's a very thin vision of citizenship, and I just want would would love for you to expand on that. And I'll turn it 
over to Julia for a quick question, then give you a quick chance to answer and have some final remarks. Yeah, I fear I don't really have any quick questions, so I'm just going to co-sign Lee's question, and I think this relates directly to the example about the Clinton administration and the, you know, policies around the, the budget, which is that these policies might have been favored by some experts, they might have even been favored by majorities, but what citizens want is a sort of dynamic thing. It's not necessarily analogous to consumer demand, and we also have to think about how policies affect everyone and how they affect and create losers, which is is inevitable, but I think has different kinds of impacts. So I'm essentially just co-signing um, Lee's, Lee's question here to move us into our final segment. Okay, let's see. So first, uh, enthusiastic agreement with both of you that the the analogy of citizens as customers is thin. It's just super helpful. So it is, in a, as you said, Lee, you use the word shorthand. It's super helpful to think about incentives. When we think about a healthy democracy, this gets at when I was saying final five voting is not the only thing we should do. And looking at voters as customers, not the only way we should look at them. We need to have different ways of analysis when we're figuring what's going on in the system. So some of the things we need to do is really re-engage more people in this active citizenship that's required for the vibrant democracy. I do believe that final five voting is quite helpful there because it creates a marketplace where people have agency, their vote is going to matter, and they are going to have choices that they could resonate with, so it's worth participating in. So sometimes people say, well, don't we just have to increase participation? I say, yeah, but the the voter is actually super, super smart. They actually know, in most cases, viscerally or, you know, just sort of um, subconsciously, that their vote isn't making a difference. So they're not engaged. So instead of trying to artificially run a get out the vote campaign, what I wanna do is make their vote be part of determining who has majority support and that making their engagement of time worthwhile is the best way to support, you know, their their full expression as citizens. Um, But again, other other interventions and programs, you know, should be engaged in order to take advantage of, let's say, uh, a marketplace that that is in support of that. I also believe that it is true citizens want dynamic things. Consumers do as well. What we're setting up with Final Five voting is a situation where the debate will be different, you know, every election if what consumers, if what citizens want is changing. And there are always, uh, quote unquote, losers in policies. I mean, that's certainly the case. What this system does is ensure that very few people are disenfranchised. So if you, this is, you know, we talk a lot about enfranchisement here. I'll give you this example. So Right now, we have this huge problem of gerrymandering 
gerrymandered districts, but we also have a problem where a lot of districts are sort of, even if you had nonpartisan redistricting, where districts are naturally sorted into communities where their political views are either on the left or on the right in today's you know, two-dimensional world. And what Final Five voting does is it is the mass reenfranchisement of every voter who was either naturally or by you know, partisan intent disenfranchised in a gerrymandered district. Because let's think about it. We say, oh, that's a red district. And what that means is the Republican primary decides. But with final five voting, that district can be really red, but only the general election decides. And in the general election, independents, Democrats, politically homeless people, libertarians, they will all have a vote that makes a difference as well, unless, for example, there's only one candidate that on the first ballot gets over 50%, which, you know, that is how democracy works. So you reenfranchise every voter because the general election is always the election that matters and everybody's votes matter in pursuit of the majority. So we go from, you know, again, we go from only 10% of people's votes mattering to over 50% of people's votes mattering in any district or state in the country who puts this in. That is an incredible expansion of representation and an increase in, uh, you know, healthy competition. So I like to call it free market politics, actually, and it delivers the benefits that healthy well-regulated free markets deliver results, innovation, and accountability, and that delivers that in the politics system. So that's why in 2015, I sold my company. I could not unsee what I had seen, and I moved to work on this full-time. Let me say that with all the humility of knowing that the piece I'm focusing on is not the only thing that matters. It is, however, the highest leverage, best ROI in the near term. And I will cover that when I, uh, perhaps in my last word, I don't know if we're there. I just want to thank you for joining. I think we're, we're out of time here, but you definitely have the last word after I um, I'm, I'm quiet here, but I just want to, you know, thank you one for your service, for your commitment to this. You know, I don't know if any of us know what the answer truly is, but I think one of the things that we do know is that a bunch of people trying to figure out the answer, arguing and debating with one another and taking action on behalf of their convictions and their principles is actually the answer. That's the whole point. And our constitution, our political system creates a space in which we can do that. And that's the beauty of our system. And so maybe, maybe you are right. You know, you've given me a lot to think about here. And I will say that Alaska, the, the state motto, I looked this up, I looked this up, I don't know it off the top of my head, is north to the future. So maybe final five voting or final four voting north to the future of electoral regulations in this country. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. It's something to think about. But with that, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to give you the last word. This has been a, a wonderful discussion and I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you, James. Thank you, Julia and Lee. It's been a real pleasure, a real honor, actually. So Yes, we have laboratories of democracy. And my last word is that we get to take advantage of those to move this great American experiment forward. Here's how it works. Because now we've talked all about why should we do Final Five, but the question we really didn't get at is 
how would we get it done? So that's equally important because a theory that you can never realize in in real life is useless. Uh, That's how we look at it in business for sure. So Article 1 in the Constitution gives every state the power to make the rules of elections for Congress, which means each state can change these rules individually whenever they want. In any state, they could have legislation, and in half the states, they can skip the legislative piece and go straight to the to the people by using a ballot initiative. That's how Alaska won this final four voting in 2020. So in 2022, I am committed that we will see more ballot initiatives in states here in the lower 48 following Alaska North to the future. I I love that, uh, James. And if we win even a small number of them, the amazing possibility is that we can see a difference in how not not again not a utopia but a change in what's possible in congress as soon as you know november 9th which is to say the day after the elections in 22 because the incentives will have changed for those states where we win this for those representatives from those states so if we win in four states and we have alaska we get 10 senators that have freedom from the tyranny of the party primary and that have the freedom to use their talent and passion, and they are incented to do so on behalf of their general electorate. And they know that if they don't, they will see new competition in their next election. And that's what I hope we'll see. It's totally doable. And if people want to uh, get in touch with me, I do hope they'll look me up at political-innovation.org or Google Catherine Gale and TED Talk and take a look at that as well. I would I would just love it because we need to make these first states, uh, well, these second states after Alaska, uh, get across the finish line in 22. And thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for being here. And we'll have all of that information in the show notes for our listeners. Uh, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.